Searching for just the right job? Whether you're looking for full-time, part-time, or seasonal work, you can get started today. Amazon Jobs offers the whole package with great pay and flexible shifts that allow you to choose when and how much you work. Find a warehouse close to home and discover the role that works for you. To get your application started for an hourly job, go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. What's up, y'all? I'm Amanda Seals, and listen, I get it. We're in some serious times, so I think some of y'all forgot I'm a comic. She had them jokes. I mean, you forgot I had a whole HBO comedy special. I be you forgot I showed love to how black women give compliments. Okay, polka dots. And from shade to how white women move in corporate America. Stop CCing all these unnecessary people on these goddamn emails. I get it. We've been cooped up for a long time. That's why the Amanda Seals Black Outside Again Comedy Tour is coming to a city near you. Go to amandaseals.com today and get your tickets so we can laugh and learn our way through this madness together. How black am I gonna have to get? A podcast network. I don't know. Do you guys, uh, they're, they're, uh, talking to some kids who are being rowdy. Um, you guys like American football? Do you guys, have you guys ever had a tummy ache? I was just thinking about them. They were pretty bad. trying to remember the last tummy ache I had. It must have been when I had a PB&J that had just been in the fridge a little too long. And um, uh, it was a very powerful, very spiritual, deep tummy ache. And I remember tearing up. Uh, There are times when you haven't had a tummy ache in a really long time and you're able to sort of enjoy the um, the break from health for a minute and think, my God, this is a very orb-like complex tummy ache which I am able to parse. And I just think that can be a beautiful thing, you know, a tummy ache. If you think about it, anything can be beautiful. Um, except, I guess, genocide. That would be something that maybe isn't beautiful. Uh, there might be some really daring artist who is able to figure out um, how that could be beautiful, but I, I don't. I don't think there is one. I was just telling him about tummy aches <laughs> and how they they can be nice tummy aches yeah we don't have to talk about that i was just ranting if you put a mormon and a meth head together this is what they sound like aaron would all and just so read our friends listen to them talking to mike We're here with my good friend Max Bamey here on Mormon and the Method today. Max, the first time I ever met you, you were drunk. 
we were at a ca- a friend's cabin up in the woods, and I got there, and you were drunk, and we had an amazing time. We had the best time, and I was under the impression that night that you don't drink. That I th- I felt like it was like oh like everyone seemed to be like it's so weird that Max is drunk, and like I, I had this idea that you just didn't drink, and that I was getting this glimpse into into drunk Max. But then every other time I have ever met you, you have uh, been you've been drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what happens is I. I drink and then I go a really long time without drinking and then drink again. My rule is that I drink when I'm in a good mood and when I know there will be fun to be had while drunk. So if it's a really nice occasion and I feel like I'm having a good time, I drink. And you so happen to be there. That's why you always drunk around me. Yeah, yeah. it's always going to be good a good policy. time. That's a good policy. I don't mm-hmm. like the idea of adding alcohol to sadness or trauma or yeah. like in movies when the, when they would have like a breakup and be sad or like someone would die and they'd be sad and then they're at the bar drinking. I'm just like, oh man, you're not going to heal right. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it just exaggerates your current mood, which is why when I drink, I just become more autistic. <laughs> <laughs> my, my eye contact just resides underground at that point. And um, no, that's too bad. But there was actually one other time I met you. Before um, the cabin? Before the cabin. Um, what was it? It was at Wise Guys, and uh, I saw you do a set, and it was, um, you were talking about suicide a lot. Okay. And, uh, and there happened to be some, like, bumps outside, like an earthquake or just a thing that was falling really loudly outside. And you said, what? And, but it sounded kind of like a voice, the rumbling, and you are like, do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so pleased, and I can't. <laughs> I came up to you and I was like, I thought you were really funny. He was like, oh, thanks, man. And then that was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I remember that. I remember. I thought it was like mic feedback. I thought it was something from the speakers above me that was like. <sighs> it could have been. And I was like, yeah. And I made some joke about it being uh, a voice telling me to do it. Yeah. yeah. I don't have like a memoirist's memory, like a carnal memory. It's just very, you know, like a, I don't remember the. The details of things, I just remember like a transcript of the uh, words that happened and a general feeling. <laughs> I since, think- so, since you've been here, I've learned of two new occupations that I didn't know existed. Business surveyor and memoirist. <laughs> Mem- <laughs> I, like, I don't have a, a memoirist memory. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> memory is so interesting. We were just talking about on the last episode, but uh, I have a weird... I guess my brain takes pictures of things. And Mm -hmm. so if I have a conversation with you and I remember the conversation, like we're talking on the phone, the only way for me to access that memory is to go back to where I was physically at when I, like the parking lot that I was sitting in in my car when we had that conversation on the phone. And if I don't go back to that picture in my mind, I can't access the conversation. That's so interesting. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, that's very location specific. Um, usually I can't remember the places things happen. Do you feel like you have really good conversational recall? Because I think for in my case, the location locational memory is kind of um, diminished in favor of my conversational recall. I uh, I don't know. I think I do. I you well I my memories totally changed. But I used to remember every single word of conversations really well. Now I don't anymore. I I used to just remember 
everything. I had a great memory, and it would serve me very well in fights with my ex-wife. Mm-hmm. I could be like, nope, that's not what you said. You said this, and we were here, and like I remembered every everything and then in the last few years i've changed so much and just i like keeping track of the weird things that have changed like the way i sleep is different i sleep differently now than i ever have my whole life that's weird uh but my memory just disappeared and i think i'm happier for it i like it Mm -hmm. i think it's fun when people retell me stories that i don't that i was there for that i don't remember after you after you went down to get coffee sam told me another memory from that colorado run that i was like what happened and uh, it was fun to relive that memory again it's all but what's interesting to me is when uh people start telling you Cause there are tons of things I don't remember cause I've lived like a lot of life. And so they're like wild stories that when people are like, do you remember when you carried that dead owl around for two weeks? And I was like, Oh my God, fuck. Yeah. Like as soon as I say it, I'm like, yeah, it jogs my memory. You know, it's just like, I can't keep track of all these crazy experiences, but once you say it, I remember, right. I can go back to that place. But a lot of times Aaron, uh, you'd be telling him, yeah, and remember, and then we did this and we did this, but nothing jogs it, yeah. which is just so interesting. But then he'll like, he remembers everything from a movie where I can't, there's nowhere in my brain that will store like shows I love and I'll tell you I love them. I can't find, it almost hurts to try to go find the spot in my brain where it, the show is yeah. you know i'm like i know i love it and it was about this but i can't mm-hmm. remember oh yeah that sounds that sounds so interesting it's so hard to i'm really impressed by people who are able to just do things um because it's really hard for me to start to care about something enough to do it yeah like uh people who have stories i'm like but why did you continue doing that why did you <laughs> yeah you don't care about things i feel i view you as a very passionate person when you get talking on certain subjects i'm like max has things that he loves and cares about do you not i i do mostly i don't know passion is probably a strong word because i just feel sort of diverted by those things i feel like my boredom is staved off some by some things <laughs> huh. um is that uh autism it could just be psychopathy i don't know okay (laughs) Um, yeah it might be the autism so uh everyone i was i was diagnosed with a form of autism as a kid and it's very like some people don't consider it autism formal or a form of of, of, okay and some people don't consider it autism proper because um, one of its symptoms is hyper being hyperverbal and Uh uh so it sort of covers up your difficulties hmm is it now what we would consider like uh, spectrum or yeah. high functioning? Uh, okay. Yeah, it's a spectrum, and um, it's just sort of a an overattention to words at the expense of everything. But it's, it makes you a beautiful speaker and writer. <laughs> Thank uh, you. One time on a Facebook thread, we can leave names out of it. Uh, <laughs> someone was trying to get nitpicky about words. Oh my god, that was the and Max and Max just wrote a, a thesis statement. Just was like, all right, well, if you really want to get down into it, let's start with the beginning. He went through everything that that that, that person had said and just deconstructed it. it and like an editor, you were just like, I would have, I would have shortened this. I would have said that <laughs> this is incorrect that is incorrect yeah i loved my favorite part of that was just a sentence that was really unnecessarily complex and i put by way of explanation whereas the other um problems i had were very 
uh, densely explained, this is just very bad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fuck. That was so beautiful. I think you were with me when that was going on or you were sending me screenshots, but it was it was fucking beautiful yeah, i was very beautiful. excited and max well you also use like i don't know turns of phrase like you 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 have like i've, I've heard you say things and i'm like whoa what a beautiful sentence you know it's really it's really it's a cool talent that's so people with nld the nonverbal learning disorder that's what it's called um just sort of experience things in words so everything's more or less a transcript for me and i see things by as like collections of words which ties back into the thing you were saying about memory. Like yeah. you remember all the stuff that people say and not necessarily the details surrounding it. Yeah. Okay. Eileen, uh, my girlfriend, has um, a bit about that. And she, she I'm going to do an impression of her. She says, nice. um, I started dating an autistic boy <laughs> and because I thought he would be good at math. No. He has the kind of autism where he can remember something I said verbatim six months ago. He can remember the sweater I was wearing when I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jessa, what have you of NLD? Yeah, (laughs) I mean, uh, um... Feelings? Do you have like? Do you have no, them? No. <laughs> feelings? Do you have them? Let's talk about them. Like as we're talking about, like going back to going back to an experience, and you're talking about you have that stored as a transcript. Mm-hmm. Are there feelings associated with that? Um, yeah, like uh, mostly. This is probably true of a lot of people, but my sense of smell is very tied up with with uh, memory. Like there was. A time when a girlfriend and I were breaking up, and uh, and I was very sad about it, as, as, you know. And um, we hugged, and I didn't I didn't like feel the sadness until um, they, we were hugging, and I sniffed the the I just had a whiff of the kind of laundry detergent they used, and it just and then I couldn't stop crying. And it was I don't know, like it feels like it's very. Um, there's nothing and then something will happen where it just makes me feel too much. I don't know. Wow. Um, this is very, this is very interesting. Are you smelling the detergent now? No, I just remembered it. Dang, okay. Um, Yeah, but, you know. Um, at one point when I was in the uh, mental institution and, uh, they were just trying out all these different diagnoses, they told my dad that I had something called, he says hyper intellectualism, but I've looked it up and it's not a thing. Um, where the way that my brain points, uh, at experiences and I don't have control over it, but like where I can be in a room and I can't pay attention to the person that's talking to me, but I can, I can, I'm he, I'm cataloging in a conversation that's happening across the room. And the same thing, it was like tied up with my sense yeah. of smell. Also, I am extremely, um, uh, sensitive to smells. Yeah. Like I can't like people use, I can tell if someone used Thai detergent who's in the room. Um, if we get into an Uber and they have uh, an air freshener in the car, it has it has ruined my day. <laughs> also, people's pheromones. Uh, I can I can smell their pheromones, and if I have like an emotional attachment to them, like I have to stay 
away from them otherwise that activates the uh emotional attachment yeah i don't i don't get that that's amazing (laughs) i have a i know a guy who says he can smell cancer on people do you feel like you can smell cancer on people? i feel i do feel like i can feel what kind of people are and i do feel like i experience i talk about being able to hear their thoughts but it's really a vibe thing and then also i do feel like i can smell if someone is has cancer? A piece of shit. I don't oh, think I can okay. smell if they have you cancer. Smell a piece of shit. Okay. That's interesting. Because I, um, I'm smell really interested cancer, in. Though, what, yeah. what, how do you know this guy? It, there are dogs. Does he work for the Huntsman I, told, I maybe shouldn't say names, but if I told you who it was, you would go, "Oh, jeez." <laughs> oh, <laughs> would he roll his eyes? <laughs> <laughs> I told. I whispered it to him out of mic, and it works. <laughs> What? Yeah, that guy. Is he using it for good? Is he going? No, he used it. I think he used it for attention. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It'd be nice if he could like early diagnose people. Yeah, you just you know sniffed them. Yeah. No. Can I just ask you a hundred questions? Yeah. Okay. So you feel you feel bored. Uh, is that what you're saying? Like generally, baseline is bored and disinterested. Yeah. So when I talk to people like when i first meet people i'm usually fucking with them a little bit because um i just i know it's going to be boring unless i know they're a comic and and then i try to i just i don't i'm not mean or anything i just throw random weird things out to see how they'll react to them yeah um and uh so yeah (laughs) we um we're having a conversation about i i got oven cleaner on my hands and now my hand just feels awful all the time so I was putting lotion on it and then he was like I cleaned out a popcorn filter at the movie theater once and I never got that smell off my hands you worked at a movie theater before yeah tight man worked at Megaplex a long time oh nice I worked at a movie theater it's one of my favorite jobs I I hate Megaplex and Larry Miller and everything (laughs) Uh, anyway, so you couldn't get sm- popcorn smell off your hands. <laughs> I don't know how to have uh, small talk. I don't know how to talk about. You want to talk about memory or like trauma or getting molested as a kid? Like I can engage, but like I don't know how to engage in small talk at all. So you're just talking to my autopilot. So he says, "I did that. That was nine years ago. I never got that smell out of my hand." And I went, "Really? Just because like I can't? I'm not. Well, we're not talking yet. I haven't." <laughs> and then he's like, "No, not really. I just sometimes <laughs> say things literally, and it's like, oh, okay, you're not even talking to me yet, anyway." This is- my secretary and she's awful (laughs) so don't worry about it that happens that happens a lot with me where i i'm very literal minded and then i'll say something that's exaggerated and someone will say really and i'll say uh no but then i realize that if i said yes they already know it's not literal so i get into this i get into this feedback loop of not recognizing what people take as figurative and it's bad Oh. Yeah, really is usually just a placeholder for me. Uh, that means I'm not. I, I haven't. En- I haven't engaged in this conversation yet because I. Uh, I love the idea of your secretary. Yeah, handle. Well, I have the worst autopilot. Like the wor- You would think for as much as you my autopilot has to do my interacting with people. She would have learned a couple moves by now. Yeah, but it's mostly ner- It's mostly saying yes. Yeah. Before the person finishes their sentence, and it's That's a, a solid lot. Move. <laughs> it's a lot of nervous laughter. Like it's a lot of 
uh, someone, you know, it's just going to be some small talk comment about whatever is in the immediate environment. If I'm at the grocery store, like I'm not here, like this is all, all autopilot. And, um, and then I will nervously laugh at, uh, whatever the person says and then later be like, oh, I could have said something intelligent or contributed something there, but like I would have had to come all the way downstairs and like access the control panel to speak and there was no time for that. Yeah, so. no, I have a I have a hard time with small talk too and I try really hard immediately to get it somewhere personal. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It, um, like I'll be talking to someone, they'll talk about the weather, I'll be like, you like weather? I'll say, yeah. I was like, is that about your father? Yeah. <laughs> to use that it's good it's a good time yeah i've gone and like met um his friends at like his birthday party or whatever and the couple that have listened to the podcast it's like perfect because i can just go go straight in and everywhere else i'm just trying to act normal for as long as possible but i it's bad i would just be better off being like you would be about. you would be because your secretary is not normal to no. anyone. <laughs> you're, you're you're like i just i gotta try to be i gotta be normal and it's like you're not you're not hitting it like, all right well, everyone would just be charmed by you if you were just walked into the house so what's up who got molested who got molested <laughs> Like a like a bro who got molested. No, who's trying to get molested tonight? Have you seen the video of uh, Maria Bamford being interviewed, and then somebody said, uh, "Were you molested as a kid?" And she said, "Yes, but I won't say by who." <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Maria's nuts. Oh, oh she's man, I like her. All right. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna have. Try, I was gonna segue Max into talking about therapy stuff. Max oh. is one of the most well-read friends that I have. I I mean that. I think like sincerely, he has giant books, tomes. Is that is a he has huge novels. But also, I don't have, you, like anyone could win that competition. Most of my friends do not read. Yeah. But Max is a well-read guy, and we get usually get into like really deep conversations when I go over to yours and Eileen's house. Mm -hmm. One time. You started talking to me about this book you'd read about therapy and it was really and it was like it connected to so many things that me and Jessa talk about and th talk about on the podcast that I like I think I started texting you immediately because I was very stoned which also happens when I go to Eileen's house. Uh, <laughs> I'm very stoned and I'm like I don't want to forget this Jessa remind me to talk to you about flooding Donald Trump therapy like stuff like that. <laughs> But anyway, do you remember that day? Yeah, well, the book is Irvin Yalom's um, Staring at the Sun, which is... Yeah. <laughs> Jess's interest is there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, its thesis is basically that every human problem can be distilled to a fear of death. And that's really interesting for me. And I, I, I think that is tied up with comedy a lot because I think um, all comedy, even just the silliest, silliest comedy is... You know, uh, symptomatic of, of fear of death. Um, even when it's just completely silly and nonsense, I think that's a lot of work with contrasts. And I think that in some way um, is is sublimated to mirror uh, the stark contrast between life and not feeling anything and not being. 
and uh, which I think is the funniest thing of all. I think that's the big the big joke. It's just like we're here and it sucks and we experience so much and then we die and there's nothing. There's nothing. And just all of a sudden, I'm like, nope. So do you stand up comedy uh-huh. at its heart? Is about being afraid to die. Yeah. And the contrast between life and death. Mm-hmm. And I'm the, down here for it. I like that theory. And the thing the thing I want to do in stand-up is have, um, make people look at death and then show them complete silliness as if to say, this isn't going to save you. <laughs> 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 it's kind of malevolent, but um, I think that has its own joys. Um, so every, if, if, if What's it? Ivan? What did you say this guy's name was? The oh, um, Irvin. Irvin. I-R-V-I-N, Yalom, Y-A-L-O-M. So uh, Irvin says that all human problems could be distilled down to... Pretty much. Um, I'm actually pretty bad at paraphrasing books, mm. and I. Uh, but that was I the do, sense I got. A lot of times you take a book off of a shelf and read excerpts to me. <laughs> Or is that just Gore uh, Vidal? Gore <laughs> because I'm obsessed with that man. Yeah. No. One time Max was like, you want to read the funniest thing ever written? <laughs> and I'm, uh, I'm stoned. <laughs> he hands me a 900-page book. 1,300. <laughs> he just tells me to read this page, and I, I have no idea what I read, Max. I don't know what it is. It's just, I just it, trusted you that it was funny. He just seems to... He was a very, like, he created this persona of a very cold um, person who's kind of above human problems. And as somebody who had to very laboriously um, learn how human beings work from the time I was a kid, that appeals to me a lot. Mm-hmm. So he's he's very callous, and um, I just sort of enjoy that uh, because I was kind of dissociated for a long time. Um, like, what does that mean? You, I, like you, I know people say like they've had periods of dissociation. You say you were dissociated for a while, just from birth, from like birth. A, yeah, just a general failure, failure to understand how to make friends. So, like the first, um, were you dissociated from yourself or just from other other people? people. Okay, I wonder right. if it's okay, a okay, lack okay. of attachment system. Do you know anything about attachment systems? Um, I I used to. I can't remember a lot about it, but. So you have uh, like from from birth, like early childhood, people develop attachment systems. Yeah. You got anxiously attached, mm-hmm. avoidantly attached, mm-hmm. uh, severely severely avoid- avoidantly attached, and then securely attached. And I have like struggled with being avoidant mm-hmm. like most of my life. In that I like even with my own kids, like he was describing how much your kids can hurt your feelings and stuff earlier, and then I was just like, oh, I don't. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, just me like, grow, no i don't think grow so thicker skin i was like it's crazy how how badly a three-year-old can hurt you and just is like what the fuck yeah <laughs> uh i think that's normal i think most parents are like wearing their heart on their sleeve and i have these like few anomalies in my life where someone came along and uh i get like a blip of being attached but then other than that i just stress about i'm gonna have to pretend to cry at people's funerals like i spend a lot of time like yeah. uh when these people when these people very close to me die mm. i'm gonna have to like everyone's gonna look at me weird at the funeral you know mm. but yeah. i wonder if there's like no attachment system um to- well 
I think with most comedians I've met anyway, um, they just experienced a general lack of approval as children. And uh, like I didn't feel listened to unless I was funny. And um, Ooh, that is brilliant. Max, I love that. I think that like there's there's a reaction. I, I, I can remember the feeling of getting laughs and being like, I like this. And I've and I've thought about that. I never thought about it as like I'm being heard right now. Like mm-hmm. I'm a kid, and like this is because I loved making adults laugh. I loved it. My parents tell stories about how I just always I'm like trying to tell jokes to adults and stuff. But I never like really connected the dot of like not being heard by adults or just not getting uh, my point across or not getting approval, mm-hmm. and then hearing people laugh. And going, I want to do that. Mm-hmm. I see Ethan do it. I see Ethan when, uh, like, we're just at Endgame. We're watching the movie. When he hears everyone in a theater laugh at something, he gets excited and he says the exact same thing back to me. He's like, "Dad, Dad," he said, and then really loudly says it to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel, and I, and I'm always. As a, a comic, I like watching my son learn comedy mm-hmm. and understand it. You know, and I notice these things a lot where he's like, he sees it. And, and like likes th- that sound of laughter and wants to get it himself. But I uh, like to think of it as being like, uh, you know, as a kid, you're powerless as a kid. You're very few ways to get attention. So like a lot of us, you know, will like throw a tantrum, cry, be pouty, be a, be a dick, break something, whatever to get your parents' attention. Do you feel like that was like the way that you just experience interacting or was that like a, an actual survival mechanism you had to learn in your environment? Yeah, I think most of my uh, my inability to communicate was congenital. Um, I just didn't, just from the time I was born, I didn't understand humans. And then coupled with that, I... Um, my mom, my mom worked a lot and wasn't around a lot. And then my dad was a stay-at-home dad who had his own stuff to deal with, and uh, and um, I just think those two things together created a very uh, um, very isolated space. Yeah. And uh, so the way I started to communicate with people was through jokes because that's when my dad, it seemed, was um, able to. Uh, uh, we we connected at that point. But the problem with that is that um, joke making is a very one-sided type of communication. It's very dictatorial. And I think a lot of the reason a lot of comics get into it is because um, they had a hard time communi- communicating with people and they need connection. And they're able to get it with an audience, but they control everything. Yep. Wow. I think it's just a control thing. And um, you don't want to let it go because it's amazing it's amazing when you get a good laugh you know but, um i'm i'm i don't think it's healthy <laughs> <laughs> you know, like stand up in was? general or i don't i don't think stand up in general is very healthy no i think yeah i mean you're right there's the we are controlling it we're the, like the i view it more as like the maestro and i th- i always say that stand up is a dialogue disguised as a monologue I th- I I got a lot better at stand up when I started relinquishing that need to control every single yeah. aspect of the show and just started listening to the audience more. And I don't mean that like is they're not 
talking, you mm-hmm. know, but like you feel, you, you hear how they react to the joke. You, you hear what they're interested in based on how they're laughing. And like, you can follow that and go in different directions and change your setup to, depending on what they say to you in the proverbial ether, you know, what, the, what they're saying to you. So it sounds like if you looked at a transcript, it sounds like just, I spoke for an hour, yeah. but in, uh, in reality, I feel like we're all talking, we're all talking and it is uh, a conversation. I don't know. I feel like I've, I've got final say, but I'm a very benevolent dictator. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, 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 I give you a lot of wiggle room, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to come down on you, on you too hard. No. But in but it's in no sense democratic stand up. Well, doesn't the audience get to decide what's funny? Are you going to re- reveal the... that you're an improv guy? Because uh, <laughs> I'm very impressed up to this point. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm not an improv guy. I don't I don't like improv so okay. much. I find it I find it very uh, you know maudlin and sticky and too sweet and I don't what's like maudlin mean. What? Mo- modeling? Modeling is like uh, uh, mockish is another word. It's kind of, um, it's just cutesy. Yeah. yeah. Fake, yeah. Yeah, fake cutesy bullshit. And when, I, d- I don't like uh, artistic media wherein the audience is already sympathetic. That seems, it's just annoying for me. Like when you go to storytelling competitions, oh, everyone, no matter how you do, everyone comes up to you and like, I thought you, I thought you really revealed a lot about yourself. And <laughs> I know it was hard for you to put that together. And, and it's amazing to me that you're brave enough to, um, to face those things. And I hate that shit. Right. You're right. It's more sympathetic for giving audience. Yeah. There's something, that's why I like try to make my stand up sound worse like i rough it up some so that it doesn't sound polished because i think when people when people believe that this is happening right before their eyes their standards are a lot lower yeah because they're a part of the joke and improv they're a part of it they got to see it happen and so even though it's a really uh bad joke it gets Mm -hmm. a bigger laugh because well they just thought of it in the moment yeah and so i i thought that and i was like well why don't i just uh make my jokes sound worse <laughs> to get bigger laughs then. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, a lot of comics use, or we, we talk about using comedy as therapy. Yeah. And there's a lot of opinions on that and takes on that. Mm-hmm. Do you think comedy is therapeutic for you? Well, um, I think it comprises a lot of the same principles. I think, so when you're in therapy, the object that how I've understood it anyway is that you have a person you pay to be your friend. You have a uh, you have a paid relationship <laughs> with this person, and what makes you comfortable in it is that you gain positive approval, no matter how much terrible shit you tell this person. And that he keeps saying, "Oh, that's normal. You're okay. It's just humanity. You're fine." And that's what stand up is. I think it's um, you saying things that are so human people don't usually talk about them. And so the audience sort of co-indulges with your um, humanity. And then and, they, they approve you with their laughter. Mm-hmm. They, when they laugh, you know they're saying, we do that too. Yeah. Or you're, you're okay. Yeah. You know, you're fine for thinking that. And I think a belief in God is the same thing. I think that's just a, God is just a symbol for uh, self-love. Because in every theistic religion, you believe in God, and in return, 
God just loves you unconditionally, no matter what, even if you go to hell. He loves you and loves you and loves you. He loves you even while you're in hell. Um, and people need that. And if they, if they don't get that sense of unconditional love adequately as children, they throw themselves more into whatever form um, that replacement will take. It's, I don't know. This is all just guesswork, but it, I keep playing with the ideas. A lot of people tend to experience, it's not necessarily what it was, but the experience that they had with their parents, their perceived lack of love or their perceived chasing affection. When in fact, it's just the beliefs of the time or the personality of the parent. Um, People then going and seeking out that same that same loop Mm -hmm. in their life, which to me, a lot of the God stuff is because the God stuff uh, is unconditional love disguised, conditional love disguised as unconditional love. I think that's true. Yeah. And it's, if you really listen to the core of it, it's an abusive boyfriend. Mm -hmm. It's you are bad, but I'll love you anyway, which is the beginning of a narcissistic relationship is like, you are so flawed. Mm -hmm. I will tear you down to where you don't know how to leave. And then, and then I will just refill you with my love just enough to keep you here. To make you more like me too. Mm -hmm. Like the way, the way for you to be happy is is to become more like me. Yeah. And I have the answers and I will give them to you because I'm very generous because I love you because I want you to be happy by happy. I mean like me because I'm happy and you can be happy. I I think that's more or less specifically uh, a Judeo-Christian. In the, Christianity you're taught you're nothing and sinful and yeah and uh, you have to redeem yourself by a love of Christ and I I tend to um, I don't disbelieve in God Uh, I I can't say I believe in him either I suppose I'd be agnostic though saying I'm agnostic sounds like being a pussy lame (laughs) (laughs) I like that I like that more than atheist though Yeah, I do. I like saying I don't disbelieve. I can't say I disbelieve in God. Sounds very cool. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Um, But I I like saying, I sometimes say I'm an atheist to piss people off. (laughs) Yeah, I think I keep keep shitting on atheists on the podcast and then I keep trying, I keep editing it out. I don't, (laughs) most atheists I know are very vegan in their belief. They're for like someone who hates religion. You sure are very cocky and smug about your lack of belief. Dude, you know, yeah, after that one show when they were trying to invite me to the meetings. And they were they super were, rude. It's they rude. Were rude. Like, they, were, they were rude. And but then they were like, they have they were like, come to our atheist meetings. And I was like, why the fuck? I don't <laughs> what? They, had, they had a card with timetable. Like there was a list of so many different things. And I was like, you guys, so you guys left religion and then just really like still missed meetings. <laughs> you were like, I, st- I, what am I going to do with these extra few hours every week? I really still would like to get into a room of people and tell them how they should live their lives. Yeah. It's why well, I don't, I didn't go to a meeting, so I don't know what happened. So I, sorry. But I, uh, back when I was an angry, angry atheist, I went to a, um, so it's one of my favorite board games. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I didn't come up with that. Actually. I can't remember who did. Somebody was describing Christopher Hitchens. Um, and they said he never got out of his angry, angry atheist stage. Oh, and it was a public figure who said it. I can't remember, but, um, but credit to them. Credit to them. Where it's due. 
And I, well, I went to BYU and they have a group of people who are ex-Mormons and ex-believers at BYU. You oh, wow. You went to BYU? Oh, no. I, I Sorry. I went oh. to a meeting of theirs. Okay, 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 okay. Sorry. And um, they're just the most annoying, self-serving, self-aggrandizing narcissists. <laughs> and I yeah. hope they fall down the stairs into a volcano. <laughs> So I think I end up shitting on atheists because, uh, and then not not acknowledging that there are a ton of atheists who I don't know they're atheists because they they have never um, smugly said it to me or or used it to put down someone else's um, belief. So, but I just it's sad to me. I yeah. think it's ultimately the idea that we're just here and then we die doesn't resonate with me at all. But then also is like depressing it it's is. like if that ends up being the end i'll deal with that when i get there and nothing mm. happens and then you begin to suspect yourself of wishful thinking because that's such a terrible idea yeah but also i think it's either that human beings have a native tendency to be worshipful or we're connecting with some part of the universe we don't understand yeah because i i feel like that a lot you know and then um that's um described away by uh, Christopher Hitchens at all as mere numinousness, um, which at its root, I'm pretty sure just means a connection with the supernatural or a feeling of the supernatural. And but, he's saying that's not real. Yeah. He says it's not real. He says, you, well, he kind of mischaracterizes it, I think. Um, I may have a skewed etymological understanding of that word, but he he says that, um, well, you can feel the numinous, but it doesn't mean there's another plane. But numinous, I'm pretty sure, just means that there's another plane. Yeah, he just seems oh. like he'd be really lame to do drugs with. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I mean, maybe not because he was such a, I mean, that part of him was such a, like, his worst writing is when he writes about God and philosophy. But when he writes about um, literature and history, he's one of the best essayists of all time, I think. Interesting. Yeah. I am just a seeker and just want to explore and i feel like there is something over there i feel like i've i've had a near-death experience so like i've i've experienced it yeah it's like the uh the final frontier right like we know most of the other shit and so but at the end it doesn't matter like if i die and nothing happens so then do you think i had not fun are you had, do you think you're not afraid of death I think that was the thing that I came back from the near-death experience uh, without a fear of death because they I got to come back. They were like, you want to go back? And I was like, oh, wait a second. That's an option. And then I remember talking to people whose like, dad had died or whatever, you know? And I was like, I, nobody dies against their will. We all uh, like chose to come here and control all of it without knowing they can, we control it. And um, nobody dies against their will. That's why you can put two people in the same kind of accident. One walks and one doesn't, you know? And people are like, my dad would have never left if there was a choice. And it's like, well, you're assuming that this fucking matters. And it doesn't. It's a game. So if you're playing a video game, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. But there have been since then things in my life I have gotten attached to and then watched a fear of death come with that attachment. When my kids are babies, I get very attached. Like, like I have that attachment to them for like that window of time. You obsess over them dying. Mm -hmm. And I obsess over them dying. I obsess over myself dying and them being left to themselves. Where right now I don't think 
I'm afraid to die. Mm. I think a fear of death is bound up with with being driven or not being driven because I think uh, um, I didn't do anything for a long period of time but sit at home and read books because um, I was afraid to go past any milestone in life because I thought that would get me closer to death. Whoa. And I think that was, and I talked to my therapist about that and he said, I think that's a pretty good description of what you've got. And I think other people... Um, Does he pay you at the, at the end of that session when you <laughs> nail it? He's like, well, okay. And he just Venmos me a 20 <laughs> and like, with a crying emoji on the... <laughs> that's this really, is why. <laughs> Does it make you feel good though when your therapist is like, you nailed it, man? Well, I had, I started reading a lot about therapy because I was in therapy and I wanted to know how it all worked so I could get better faster. Mm. So I was... At that point, I had been talking to him about it for a long time and working out exactly what sorts of what sorts of things fuck up a person. <laughs> so at that point, it felt like a lot of hard work. It wasn't a it wasn't a um, just an aptitude. Just a natural, yeah. Yeah. Still, I love the way your mind works. Uh, I love the. Yeah, this uh, is fascinating. You're like I'm in therapy. I better research therapy to get better at therapy. It's good. Yeah, so do you, right now? Do you think? Are you still afraid to die? Oh, yeah. No, um, I think everyone is. I think it's all sublimated in different ways. Um, even people who, even people who are very... Even, so even happy. if I if I think, because I, I think I have to be afraid of death on some level, mm-hmm. but all the time I think thoughts like, oh, man, it'd be so nice to die today. <laughs> like I think, I've, I, I think of it as like relief. <laughs> I'm like, oh, dude, if I, if like an accident, like I don't want anyone else to be hurt. Like I don't want anything. To, I don't want like to be in the car with Ethan and die. But like if something uh, like, you know, something happens and I'm like, man, if that just killed me and I didn't have to go to this show tonight or uh, ever wake up depressed again or ever have to fix things with my ex-wife or ever have to, I'm like, oh, it'd just be sweet. It would be sweet to just be like, I'm dead. It's nice. That's how yeah. I that's how I clearly feel about death. I'm sure I'm scared of it on some level, mm-hmm. uh, uh, or else why would I be doing stand up comedy? And Irvin Yalom talks about that too. He says um, sometimes people's fear of death manifests as a desire to foil it and to get there first. As in, I think mm-hmm. of it as like you can't fire me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's definitely what I'm doing. Uh. <laughs> I've read a lot about fear of intimacy in the last year and uh, like like deep-seated commitment, commitment conflict. Mm-hmm. And one of the explanations for fear of intimacy is uh, a fear of mortality and something about the uh, connotation of forever or like that, that commitment triggers uh, like a subconscious fear of death. Yeah. And I don't understand that. That all. makes a lot of sense to me. I hadn't thought about that, but it's really interesting. I think that's totally true. I think you could have Eileen on and have her talk about just that and that in the relevance of that to our relationship for an hour. <laughs> Dude, I thought about having Eileen on. Now now that I know the subject that we should talk about, we should definitely do it. Do you, come on, come on. Do you experience uh, fear of intimacy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so much. I seem like, man, from the outside, it seemed like you when you like you guys met, you dated, you went after what you wanted, and you got more and more intimate. Like it was, didn't even seem like very. 
and I, I think I was pushing that, um, but like I think I was the person who wanted to be more intimate faster, but in at the same time, um, I don't know that how it works with me is uh, like it's not so bad that like hooking up with a person's hard. It's not so bad that like I get really attached to somebody after hooking up with them. But I'm probably a lot more tender when I hook up with a person when, or when I have hooked up with a person. Than that's what we a talked people... about the first night when you were drunk. Yeah. At the, around the campfire, mm-hmm. we just immediately went into uh, intimacy issues about hooking up. <laughs> yeah. Remember. Now it's all coming back to me. Yeah. But. I, I think that's something I can be really good at, and that gives me pleasure, is giving love. But at the same time, I'll I'll do that because it gives me pleasure, because I think I'm, I'm good at making a person feel loved, and I like doing that. And then uh, we'll get to a point where we're very close, and then I'll start to back away. Are does, you? Is it harder for you to be loved? Yes. Does it feel like claustrophobia? Yes. So what I've been reading, my new rabbit hole past attachment um, systems is commitment phobia, for lack of a better word. Um, this guy gets a lot of pushback for using that word, but that he had he studied all these people with what he thought was avoidant attachment and then found out uh, a lot of people have claustrophobia, but around uh, commitment. But it's all the same physical symptoms and all the same description, and it and it comes. They enjoy the pursuit. They enjoy the the initial phases. They they believe they are enamored. They believe they are in love, and then when they get it, the claustrophobia kicks in. The claustrophobia blocks out all ability to feel the love that they felt, and they feel like closed in. And I experienced this once, I think, because it's hard to even get that close to me. But I experienced this once at the beginning of what ended up being my marriage. But I had just, I'm usually going, I usually just like to be in a pursuit. It's more comfortable for me, apparently. And so uh, I like avoidance because then I can play this other role. good to pursue. Yeah, if you pursue me, like I've never been with anyone that was like jealous or clingy or anything. I just, I can't. I'll run. And so... We, it, it was home from the past and then we got together. I put a big mountain in front of him to climb because, uh, you know, he'd already, he'd already used his second chance. And then he was just doing everything I told him he had to do if he wanted to be with me. And he's already pretty aloof. But I remember feeling like he was smothering me. Like I remember using words like he's smothering me. I'm suffocating. Uh, he's harassing me all the time. And it was like he'd call me once a day or whatever. And so when I, when I broke up with him, over the phone uh, after he had moved across the country to be with me because I told him that's what he had to do. And then after six months, we were supposed to move in together. And he was like, are we moving in together? And I was like, I can't take this. And so uh, I told him over the phone that I didn't think I loved him because I didn't hurt. And I had only ever experienced love that hurts. And then, but then we had to hang out all the time because I uh, like drove, we worked together and we drove to work together. And so the next day he was like, okay, well I'm going to move away. Cause he wasn't taking this shit for me at all. He's fine. Like he's secure. He doesn't give a shit. And so I said, well, can't you just hang out here and be my best friend for a little bit while I figure it out? And he was like, no fucking idiot. I was a Delaware. I'm not going to live in Delaware. 
And then he was leaving. And then I was panicked, like, oh, my God, he's going to leave. I don't want to live without him. And so I asked him, could we get back together? And he was like, no, this sucks. This is what you think love is? This pain? I'm not fucking doing this. You're fucking nuts. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to fucking die. And then after, like, four days, he calls me. And he's like, come over. I want to talk to you. And I'm like, yes, yes. Okay, fucking yes. Okay, I'm going to get another chance. I get to his house. And he's like, I thought about it. I love you a lot. I don't know what the fuck is going on with you, but it's a one-time thing. You definitely deserve a second chance. I'm going to give you a second chance. And the second he said that, the walls closed back in. And I was like, oh my God, what did I do? What a mistake. I was free. Why did I fucking do this? This is a fucking huge mistake. And then I was like, I need more time. And he was like, bitch, you're done. You're fucking done. Get the fuck out of my house. And and then I, cr- I cried for two weeks and it was the worst pain I'd ever felt in my entire life. And then yeah. I asked my dad to fix it. And I think it's the only time I've ever, you know, and then I just like never forgot that pain. Like Mm. from then on, I just, uh, when I would start to feel like closed in on or claustrophobic, I would remember, oh no, remember feeling you were going to die. Okay. That's real. And this is whatever. It's the only time I ever had a dynamic to where I could feel that. It's not a pattern in my relationships because I tend to just go for the easy the other one but yeah i definitely i feel it a lot uh and i resonated with what you said max about you i am good at giving love Mm. i'm I'm, it's a something that people love about me and i love to do it i love service and it's like the best i love making people feel good about themselves Mm -hmm. i love being sweet i love making people happy uh but the but like please don't do it to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that 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 it uh i uh, it's that's when I get uh, that's when I get weird. The thing that helps me is just like I just do a mind trick where I imagine myself as an old man remembering back on this moment right now, and that makes me appreciate it like every time. Uh, the the love that you're receiving. Yeah, um, like there will be there will be times when I'll I'll be in one of my phases where I'm I want to just be alone. I just want to have a life without the complication of being um, appreciated in a way I don't think I can live up to. Uh-huh. And I'll I'll think of myself like um, on my deathbed or something, and then and then pretend I'm remembering the moment. And uh, that for me that's really powerful. And um, and it makes me look around and think I'm not gonna have this forever, you know. And this is uh this is a very you know complex and special and interesting person and um to feel everything I can from life and I have to explore this because um I felt love on one level but that love is something between two people. And there are a lot of different uh, mechanisms that can arise from those two people's qualities coming together in love. And I just realized I didn't understand any of it. And I had, uh, and uh, when I when I wanted to run away, it was because I was afraid to look at it. But yeah, that's something that helps me. Anyway, I think that that changes your perspective a lot but does it change the symptoms that you're um when you do the mind trick do you feel less claustrophobia yeah yeah i think so 
Um, wow, that's fucking. You should write a book. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't. I, I. So the thing I did before I like decided comedy was the thing I did three months ago. <laughs> I would just try to write books, and I realized no, this validation is taking too long. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. That's the best. That's the best. Instantly, you know. Yeah, yeah. And we gotta wrap up, but. Uh, Thank you for being so open with us and thanks for being vulnerable yeah. and uh, thanks for that trick. We haven't plugged your podcast yet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot. So, um, a very funny comic, Utah comic, Tanner Nicholson and I are going to do a podcast. The first one should be, if not this Wednesday, the Wednesday after. Um, this episode's a ways from uh, getting released, so then it should be it should be out. There. A couple to binge, yeah, by then. Oh, Yeah. And uh, it's called Cool Guys with Issues because we're going to get really deep and vulnerable. And also, it's mostly going to be Tanner understanding human beings and teaching me how also to understand human beings and how not to be a freak. <laughs> I think you have a pretty good understanding. I've, I've learned yeah, a couple man. things I, uh, here today. I think that's because I... Um, it seems like that because I think about it too hard because I'm too uncomfortable with the subject that I think about it too yeah. hard. But <laughs> well, he's that's good. You know those stories about like the short guy who tried harder at basketball because he had to, and now mm-hmm. he's the you know he's great at yeah. it. You know, uh, or at least he's great in China or something like that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's that's your uh, yeah, Malcolm sure. Gladwell, David Goliath outlier thing. Yeah, and we'll. <laughs> So, yeah, we'll be doing that. Um, the thing, I dis- I approached Tanner Nicholson about it because I thought we would just work really well together because I'm very neurotic and hyperverbal. And he's good at um, understanding what is already obvious and telling me, he's, like, that's redundant. He's the, he's the cool guy and you have the issues. I do. Okay. <laughs> that's going to be, that's <laughs> that's going to be what it is. Uh, yeah. And he, what, what if those were just your names? Cool guy <laughs> with issues. Like, you're the sidekick? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that that will be it now. <laughs> okay. Check out Cool Guy with Issues. I I love Max and uh I love Tanner. I bet it's going to be a great podcast. I'm excited to to hear it. And we'll I'm going to create a Twitter and Instagram today um and it will be at Cool Guys with Issues podcast. So Look for that at some point. And follow them, and we're definitely going to have you back on because I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface. We got to start doing two-hour interviews. I think I yeah. feel like, and we always break through something like fifty minutes in, yeah, and then I want to go. Oh, here's what we really should be talking about. I think it takes us a while to like, you know, find it. But we uh, we could definitely have you on. Eileen, his girlfriend that he referenced a couple of times, she's opened for us before. If you've been to one of our shows at Wise Guys in Salt Lake City, you might have uh, seen her. She's a great comic, and like it would be cool to have you, have her on, have you both on. We could do a ton of different yeah. stuff. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I love you, Max. I'm going to give you a big hug as soon as we hit the stop record button. Yeah, and I'll uh, thank, thank you guys for being vulnerable, too. I just um, – it's – I feel like I need conversations like that and I don't get to have them a lot. So thank you. Mormon and the method. If you put a Mormon and a method together, this is what they sound like. Aaron Woodall and just a read our friends. Listen to them talking to Mike. Mormon and the method. Mormon and the method. Mormon and the method.
<clears throat> a podcast network. Yeah. It's the same place, right? Megaplex yeah. is where you work. This is a weird, a weird rant I would like to have. It mm. has no place in this podcast or anywhere <laughs> else in my life. I don't, I just don't know where I'll get to say it. Most movie theaters that you go to before the movie starts, like after trailers and right before the movie starts, they play a montage of movies and uh, like like classic scenes from from old movies and then they throw in like newer movies as well and just like a collection of dialogue that like sometimes they like play off of each other and stuff and uh i'm a sucker for them i love movie montages like watching the oscars the academy awards there's always great movie montages and uh you know like i i love it i love just clips of movies and be like i remember that i remember that i remember that the larry h miller megaplex uh, I I go to them a lot. Been going for years. I've they every I don't know how often they come out with a new one, but it changes up, and uh, they suck. They suck. And they they look like they're just they're edited together with like what? Who's in charge? Who has this job? Can I? take that job from them would you put me could you pay me please to pick out 15 movie clips and and put them because i could do a much better job than this shit it's like the audio is is bad like it's not mixed well the 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 juxtaposition is terrible the the selection is bad i just i hate it i hate it you know what it seems like to me it seems like whoever did that um has as their only um, exposure to showmanship Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Dude, that's, uh, I think that's true for a lot of people in Utah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's absolutely true. Um, Ethan, Ethan, uh, I take him to see so many movies. This has now happened twice with two different Megaplex montages. Uh, there, in a previous iteration, there was a scene from Moonstruck, I believe. And I think Nick Cage says, uh, I'm, I love you. And Cher slaps him and says, well, snap out of it. And I realized I took Ethan to too many movies when one day I told him that I loved him and he yelled at me, well, snap out of it. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, after we saw Endgame, he told me that his favorite part of Endgame is when the guy said A.O. and everyone else said A.O. back to him. And I realized he was talking about the clip from Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> that was in the montage at the beginning of the movie. And so now I either just love saying A.O. and making me repeat it. He goes, A.O. 